0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from The Swamp Dragon, written by Nick Korolev. A perilous Civil War-era tale of destiny, magic, and power. From the misty mountains and shadowy hollows of West Virginia, a new legend arises. It's 1863 in the Civil War-torn southern Hardy County. Beloved schoolteacher George Voorhees becomes the unlikely hero shortly after he joins the local Union militia known as the Swamp Dragons at his brother's insistence. When he's mortally wounded in an ambush by Luther Boggs, a vicious leader of a gang of Confederate bushwhackers, Abigail, his friend, local midwife, and witch, turns him into a real Swamp Dragon in order to save his life. Overnight his simple life is shattered, and he's thrust into a perilous new world of destiny, magic, and power. With only Abigail's advice for guidance, and the continued support of Sarah, the girl he loves, George must navigate the dangerous terrain of a suddenly unfamiliar world in a quest to end the reign of terror by a man whose evil knows no bounds. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from The Swamp Dragon.
1: CHAPTER 1. THE WORST DAY OF HIS LIFE There are times when a scent or sound opens in the mind scenes of a more pleasant time and place. For George Voorhees, the key was the soft, earthy scent of leaf mold and the lazy calls of chilled crickets in the early October morning mist. It filled his senses as he rode his borrowed horse toward the one-room schoolhouse up on Sights Mountain, outside the sleepy little village of Maysville in the new state of West Virginia. He was a tall, brown-haired young man not much older than his oldest student. His suit was faded and his brogans scuffed. His legs hung long over the horse's sides, giving him the look of a stork astride a barrel. All he could think of was Sarah Cunningham, the young woman he had met a year ago on a church picnic. As soon as he was finished teaching for the day, he planned to call on her at her parents' farm along the valley road to Petersburg. The thought of her deep blue eyes and smile that melted his heart filled him with a wistful joy. She was the only bright spot in a growing, dismal situation in the valley and hills he knew as home. A situation he was trying his very best to ignore, as if that would drive it all away. The whole country was gripped in a death hold by civil war. The state had been born in it, and people in the hills and valleys were entrenching ever deeper in their support of either the southern or northern cause. Families were broken. Loyalties divided whole communities. Old feuds gained momentum, and some black souls used this to their advantage as an excuse to menace neighbors they did not like. George did not want to get involved. He had children to teach, and his growing love for Sarah to nurture. Yet, every day he found it harder to resist his brother Frank's requests for him to join the state militia to defend his home from rebel raiders. More hurtful were the harsh glances Sarah's family of southern sympathizers gave him every time he was with her. Even Mr. Cooper down at the general store asked him all too bluntly last Friday where his loyalties were. His answer had been a shrug, and he quickly changed the subject to an order of textbooks. He did not know how much longer he could hold out against such pressure. It usually resulted in thoughts of how unfair life was, and him pushing the issue under the carpet in the back of his mind to be replaced by thoughts of Sarah's eyes and smile. How such a beauty could fall for him came as a profound surprise to him, being such a lanky weed of a young man compared to the robust farm youths in the county, and he could not offer much, being a poor schoolmaster living in Frank's attic. However, he found Sarah was not looking for a man of means, though her family were horse breeders and among the wealthiest families in the county. One crisp winter Sunday as they left church, she said that she loved his gentle, caring soul, and he remembered feeling his ears go hot at her words. The thoughts melted as the school came into view through the trees at the top of the hill the old brown gelding he rode had yet to climb. It was Frank's spare horse, an animal of mixed breed called Buck. George imagined Buck could run like a deer at one time in his life but those days seemed gone forever. Yet, Buck was a steady mount, with the good balance of a mountain goat, needed in these parts, and they got along fine. As usual, Buck arrived safe and sound at the school, and George dismounted and tied the reins to the hitching post under the shade of a hickory tree. It was too early for students to start showing up, so it gave him time to write lessons on the blackboard in the front of the room. When finished, he went to his desk and took a large pad of drawing paper out of the middle drawer. It was filled with his detailed pencil illustrations of the story he was telling the class after they finished the day's lessons. This time of stretching the imagination and escaping for a short while their harsh reality was something they all looked forward to each day. He was a highly skilled, self-taught artist, having spent countless hours in his younger years sketching on any scrap of paper he could find. Both his parents saw the value in his natural talent and saved brown wrapping paper from packages for him to use. He could have taken a job with Harper's Weekly, like his father had wanted him to three years ago. He even made the long trip to the Washington City office and tried, but the man in charge of the art department just brushed him off as an illustrator of fairy tales and would not listen to his pleas that the drawings of farm scenes, knights, and dragons were the only samples he had to show and that he could illustrate any news story he was asked to. It was a terrible blow. He comforted himself with the thought that he would hate living in a city anyway. Instead of becoming an artist for any other paper, he turned to a profession greatly needed in the hills, a schoolmaster. He set the pad on top of the desk, glancing out the window at the old dead walnut tree, briefly wondering if the hawk would show again. For the last three story sessions, a red-tailed hawk perched on the limb closest to the window and stayed for the whole story episode as if listening in. Then he spotted twelve-year-old Becky sights, all pigtails and freckles, walking up the trail just beyond the dead tree. She was early, as usual. He heard her happily bound up the stairs. She pulled open the door, smiled at him, and burst out, Can I ring the bell like yesterday? It was the same question first thing in the morning for every morning since the school year started. He swore she rushed to school early every day so she could do it before anyone else arrived to steal the honor from her. He smiled gently at her. Go ahead, Becky. She rushed to her desk dropped her books, and went directly to the rope that hung through a hole in the ceiling to the left of the blackboard and up to the small bell tower on the roof. She gave it a good yank and kept it up, the bells tolling echoing into the mountains and valley. The rest of the morning went much as George had planned in his lesson book. There was spelling, followed by reading and mathematics problems according to age, and a break for lunch. History was finished early in the afternoon, and that left story time. His tale was a timeless one of an evil and powerful black knight trying to usurp a kingdom. Eager faces watched him pick up the pad. As he did so, he glanced to his right out the window at the dead tree. Sure enough, the hawk came in for a graceful landing on the branch closest to the window. He smiled to himself at the mystery he intended to solve later when he got the chance. Now, where did we leave off yesterday? He asked, knowing full well the answer. John Voorhees, his dark-haired ten-year-old nephew seated at a front desk, shot up his hand, waving it wildly. Behind him, Jim Kreitz, too, had a hand raised, a split second faster. Jimmy, George said, nodding at him and getting an instant sour look from John. The Black Knight had reached King Alfred's chamber after his men killed the guards, Jim said, looking quite self-satisfied at George's nod. Very good. He flipped the page and held up a detailed drawing of a massive, sinister-looking knight in black armor. "'That's him!' yelled nine-year-old Timmy Cunningham, Sarah's younger brother. George took the excited comment as a cue to continue the saga. And then the black knight confronted the king. He changed his voice to fit the evil character. "'King Alfred, you are finished!' Your army is destroyed, your wizard is dead, and your kingdom is now mine. Bow before me, or I will cut off your head, thundered the black knight. The children leaned forward in anticipation. Little seven-year-old Katie was chewing her nails. Ah, but all was not yet lost. Contor, the wizard, had one more trick up his sleeve that would take all that remained of his strength. George continued and flipped the page to a detailed drawing of an old wizard in flowing robes, reaching up from where he lay on the palace floor with a glowing orb in hand. George continued as the wizard. In my last dying breath, I call forth the Ancient One to defend our good king against the dark forces. George flipped the page to an exquisite drawing of a magnificent winged dragon, showing its teeth in a fierce snarl. And there appeared, in a flash of white light, a great dragon. Katie stopped chewing her nails. All looked on with wide-eyed delight. From the back of the room, sixteen-year-old Albert called out, Now the Black Knight's gonna get it. Ooh, said Timmy, an eagerness bright in his eyes. The door to the schoolroom suddenly slammed open, making everyone jump and turn to look. Instant fear crept across most of their faces at the long shadow that fell over them. The hawk took off from its perch to fly away into the mountains. George froze and swallowed hard, an unpleasant, constricted sensation in his chest. Backlit and framed by the door, stood Luther Boggs, head of the local Confederate home guard, in uniform with two revolvers strapped to his waist. Boggs just stood there, staring at him malevolently, Big and muscular, with a half-smoked cigar clamped in his teeth, a grimy bandana around his neck, four straight bear claw scars across his left cheek, and smelling of bear grease. Then, Bog strode forward up the center aisle between the desks, menacing, glowering, his spurs jingling at every step. Most of the children seemed to shrink in their seats as he passed them. A few looked at him in an admiring fashion. Albert glared defiantly. Behind him outside, George could see his men all sitting on their horses, waiting. All George's worst nightmare. He was suddenly angry with himself for being so busy with his story that he had not heard the horse's approach. The anger did not last. A chill ran down his spine, as if someone had walked across his grave. Why don't you stop filling their heads full of this fairytale nonsense and teach them the three R's? Boggs demanded in a booming voice as he closed the space between them. Forcing his voice to be steady, George said, I do, Mr. Boggs. We finished early, and now it's story time to stretch the imagination, and Boggs stopped right in front of him, grinned savagely, and cut him off. It's Captain Boggs to you. I'd say spare time would be better spent teaching them their patriotic duty to the Confederate States and Virginia, not making heroes out of creatures of the devil. George felt his hands holding the pad go clammy. He must not give in to this bully, he told himself. There would be no end to the torture if he did that. I beg to differ. This is West Virginia now since June and part of the Union. Well, we don't recognize your illegal state, Luther thundered. He snatched the pad of drawings from George's hands, touched his cigar to the corner and held it up to the class as it slowly started to burn. He glared at the children. Y'all see how nice this is starting to burn? Most stared in silent fear. A few called out, Yes? He puffed up to his full height. Well, if me or any of my boys catch any of your menfolk joining the Yankee militia known as the Swamp Dragons in these parts, this is what's going to happen to your homes. Boggs dropped the smoldering pad into the wire wastebasket at the side of the desk. He turned savagely on George and poked him in the chest with his forefinger several times as he spoke right into his face, his foul breath almost making George gag. And that goes for you, too, though I expect you're too yellow, schoolteacher. The children are all I care about, George replied, struggling to show a strong front. His heart was thumping against his ribs like a trapped bird, and it was getting hard to breathe. Boggs turned away sharply and strode toward the door, making chicken-clucking noises. He stopped at the doorway and turned to George. Figured you for a mother hen. Next you'll be wearing a dress. He burst into hearty laughter at his own joke and went out the door, slamming it behind him, making George and half the children jump. All heard the sound of horses' hooves pounding away down the hill. George quickly grabbed the water pitcher on his desk and doused the fire. Then he poured himself a glass and drank quickly. When he put it down on the desk, he noted his heart slowing, and he took a deep breath. Albert found his voice first, yet he spoke in a quiet tone not much above a whisper, as if to speak louder might bring Boggs back. Why didn't you stop him, Mr. Voorhees? All that artwork you did got ruined. George leaned back and sat on his desk, running his hand through his dark hair. He looked over the whole class of questioning and frightened faces, and stopped his gaze at Albert. Well, Albert, sometimes it is not the time to pick a fight, whether it is with a schoolyard bully or a grown man behaving like one. I have all of you to think about, and was not about to be foolish with an armed man here in the schoolhouse. He sighed. I think you should all go home early today. Class dismissed. The children were all very subdued as they gathered their things and filed out. George stayed perched on his desk a while, composing himself. Then his thoughts retreated to Sarah, and it was as if the sun had broken through storm clouds. On the way to her house, he stopped to pick some fall asters from a meadow and fern leaves from the bordering woods for a bouquet. The sun was going down by the time he finished. Flowers in hand, he had only ridden a short way down the road when he heard horses behind him. A panic gripped him. He kicked Buck into a gallop and was making good speed at a level stretch of road when the horses behind him picked up speed and sounded like they were closing fast. "'Wait up, George!' came the familiar voice of his brother. George looked over his shoulder in time to see Frank on the big chestnut bow and Isaac on a black horse round a bend in the road at a full gallop in the lengthening shadows. They were in their militia uniforms, the same dark blue coats and sky blue pants of the army regulars and armed with a pistol and a carbine each. He felt his ears go hot with embarrassment. He pulled Buck to a stop. You had me worried for a moment. Thought you were Boggs. Hello, Isaac, he said as they caught up and pulled alongside. They were both in their early thirties. Frank was far more robust than George and favored their mother with his green eyes and honey-colored hair. Isaac was dark and favored his mother, a full-blooded Seneca. Heard from Johnny that you had some trouble today. Frank said grimly. Boggs has got some nerve terrorizing a bunch of schoolchildren and an unarmed man, Isaac added, frowning. They all rode forward slowly. He's a bully, using the war as an excuse to take what he wants. What can you expect? George came back dismally. I wish you would capture him and his gang, or that the regular army from the Fort in Petersburg gets him before someone gets killed. Frank frowned, exasperated. Maybe it's time you took a stand, George. The whole of Laurel's beginning to wonder about you. That's why we came looking for you, Isaac buttered in. Frank continued. We have a militia meeting tonight at Captain Sight's farm. Want you to come along. George felt his face go hot and something stirred deep inside his chest. He held up the flowers. I got plans for this evening. Together, Frank and Isaac burst out. Sarah Cunningham. George grinned, meeting their frowns with a look of innocence. Frank shook his head. She can wait, he insisted. You did promise to make the next tactical meeting, you know. Not tonight, George said stubbornly. You don't have to join yet. Just hear out the boys and Captain Seitz. See what is going on in the real world outside your school, Isaac urged. Maybe next time, George shot back. Frank, riding next to him, reached out and touched his shoulder. An earnest almost frightened to look in his eyes in the fading light. There might not be a next time for you. Bog should have made that plain with his visit. He may be back to conscript you by force or shoot you as a traitor right in front of the children. Do you want them to go through that? You ain't going to be able to hide behind being a teacher much longer, Isaac added. Some of them little darlings in your class have menfolk riding with Boggs, or that other bushwhacker, John McNeil. George was beginning to feel extremely set upon, like a cornered rabbit. I know, but they all deserve an education, and who's going to teach em if I'm riding with you chasing Boggs or the McNeil's Rangers or any other rebels? End of discussion. I'm going to see Sarah and then go home. Frank rolled his eyes in frustration. Your funeral? If you change your mind, you know where we'll be. And don't say anything to Sarah or her family about the meeting. You know where their sympathies lie. Like I would betray my own brother and friends. What do you take me for? George snapped peevishly, highly affronted. Frank and Isaac rode away into the twilight without saying another word. Next time, I promise, George yelled after them, sighed deeply, and rode on at a trot. The trapped feeling would not let up no matter how much he fought it. A dull sinking sensation grew in his stomach, and, before he knew it, the feeling of hopelessness that had plagued him for months rolled over him again. The Cunningham Farm bordered the main road to Petersburg. George rode past the cornfield, now full of stubble from the harvest, and trotted Buck up the lane to a well-kept, two-story white clapboard farmhouse with a wraparound-covered porch. He dismounted and tied Buck's range to the hitching post by the front porch straightened his worn brown jacket, and walked up the porch stairs. He knocked on the front door, and it was opened immediately, but only enough to reveal Timmy standing there, who looked rather surprised to see him. Mr. Voorhees? I didn't think you'd come here after what happened today at school, Timmy said simply, standing there unmoving. I don't know why not. I'm not about to let a bully stop me from visiting Sarah. He forced a smile. Sarah suddenly pushed Timmy out of the way, frowning at him. Timmy, go help Pa with the evening barn chores. Timmy disappeared. George felt like melting on the spot when Sarah looked up at him, with her expressive blue eyes the color of the autumn sky. The sight of her made everything seem so much better in his world. She came out and closed the door behind her. George held out the flowers to her. I picked them myself. Thank you. You are always so kind and thoughtful. She took them inside, looking longingly from the flowers to him. He swore she could see clear to his soul and was totally mesmerized. Slowly, ever so gently, he took her free hand in his. She squeezed his hand lightly. Tears began to appear in her eyes. It was unexpected, like jarring notes in a favorite song. The shock brought him back to Earth. Is there something wrong? He asked his stomach suddenly feeling like it was full of grasshoppers. She blinked back the tears. No, well, I... The door suddenly opened. Her older brother Andrew was standing there, a grim look on his aquiline face. He was wearing an open gray rebel cavalry shell jacket over his civilian shirt and a pair of revolvers strapped to his waist. George's mouth gaped in shock. Andy, you with Boggs? Andy stepped out on the porch to push in protectively between his sister and George. I think it best you not see Sarah anymore until you decide whether your loyalties are with Lincoln's illegal state or the old dominion. And from what Timmy says, you're on shaky ground. Andy took his tearful sister by the arm and hauled her into the house with him, slamming the door in George's face. Outraged, George pounded on the door with his fists. Sarah? Sarah! he shouted, his voice cracking. Leave, boy, unless you're willing to make up your mind. Her father's voice sounded from the side of the porch, startling him. George turned to find Mr. Cunningham, a strongly built, middle-aged man with a full beard, standing in the side yard in his work clothes. Struggling to keep what composure he had left, George took a step to the top of the stairs. Mr. Cunningham, I can't. The children, I- Mr. Cunningham strode forward, his eyes flinty hard and untied Buck's reins. He thrust them at George. Then get off my property. Come back when you've made up your mind to join us. Time to root hog or die. The injustice of it all welled up inside him, so he wanted to yell with fury. But it would do no good. Dejected, without another word, George took the reins, mounted slowly, and rode away at a slow trot his eyes burning, and feeling a terrible hollow inside him he did not want to feel or examine, a dark, cold hole where Sarah had been.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from The Swamp Dragon. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.